it's always a dangerous thing when you see two preachers get up at the same time. But we are, the reason we're up here today is we're beginning a new five-week series. And we wanted to just give a little bit of an overview on what this series is all about because we do think it's something that's pretty important for Riverstone Church and a great way to start this new year. What we're talking about, if you look on the screen, it says decoding our mission values. Now, I have a feeling that probably about 99% of you have no idea what we mean by mission values. And that's okay. That's why we're doing a five-week series. And I have a feeling that 99% of you just have no idea that we even have mission values. And that's also a good thing because they're pretty new for us. Um, it's something that we've done as a leadership. As we look to where God is leading us as a church going forward, we've always had our mission statement, which I'm going to touch on in a moment, but we've added in what we call mission values, and we want to be able to communicate with you what they are. And about probably about three months ago or so, I shared with you a vision that we believe God is giving us for about the next three years of ministry here at the church, and I'll touch on that briefly, because this five-week series is talking about what exactly are mission values. And if you look on the screen, what we'll see is, and it's a descending order, we have the mission of the church, then we have our mission values, and then we have the vision of the church. Now, the reason these are in that order, there's a reason. Let me read for you what it says about the mission. Christ, as head of the church, gives the entire church its mission, which as a local church we are to obey. You see, the mission of the church is given to us by Jesus Christ. See, all churches, let's go back 1,500 years ago, 500 years ago, and today, the mission of the church was given to us by God and should stay consistent throughout time. See, you can go to Acts 1.8, we can go to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, we can look in different places, places. Paul in, um, in Colossians 1, 28 and 29 kind of gave his own little mission of what God had called him to do. So hopefully 20 years from now, you have a completely different pastoral staff here at Riverstone Church. The mission shouldn't vary. Might, the wording of the statement might be a little bit different, but the mission should stay the same. Now, as we go down with mission values, um, that's something that can change over time. Hopefully, it doesn't change very often. Um, but when you go down to the level of the vision of the church, that is something that should change every few years as you look and say, how are we doing at accomplishing the mission that God has called us to? And the leadership of the church should say, you know, I really feel like we need to emphasize this in the coming couple of years so we can strengthen how we're carrying out the mission of the church. So what we see, we see mission. Again, it was given to us by Jesus Christ. Mission values, well, what exactly are they? Well, there are biblical priorities for guiding our ministry, and they act as the plumb line for developing and evaluating ministry that aligns our mission. Now, it says act as a plumb line. Well, if you don't know what that is, construction throughout the, the ages, they have used plumb lines. And if they were building a building, what they would do is they would drop a line down, and it was called the plumb line. And it would help to keep that building perfectly straight so as they worked off of the plumb line, they could constantly tell, is this building being built straight so it's going to be strong? Now, our mission values are something that we're saying, these should act as plumb lines when we develop and evaluate our ministry. For example, I know ever since I've been in ministry, it's always common 
people will come in from a different church or people will get a passion in one area and they'll come and say, Pastor Bob, you know, my church back in Colorado, we used to do this. Could have been a great thing. We should be doing it here. Now, we could have 10,000 really good things that we could do as Riverstone Church. But do you realize if we tried to do 100 of them, we probably wouldn't be faithful because you can't do 100 things really well. And we have to say, what is it that God is calling us to do as a church? And hopefully, as these mission values act as a plumb line, they will help us to say yes to the things that God, we believe God wants us to do and no to the others. When we look at our ministry and we say, how are we doing in ministry? These mission values should help us to say, you know what, I think we need to strengthen this area a little bit more. That's what our, our mission values are. And then I mentioned the vision is a summary of how we believe God's leading us to carry out our mission in the coming in the future, a few years forward, in alignment with our ministry convictions. Now, as we talk about mission and mission values, it's not missions where we think about missions where, you know, we maybe, we send out missionaries, we support them financially, we pray for them, and they go do the ministry. That's not what we're talking about. Mission is the mission that God has given all of us as a church. And you'll see that on the slides that we chose for this five-week series, that corner stuff, what that is, that's DNA. Now, if you think about DNA, what it is, it's a molecule that contains the biological instructions that make each species unique. So, if we had on this platform, we had a dog over here, we had an elephant over here, and we have a pastor over here, our DNA is all going to be different. But see, when you look at me standing up here as Bob, you don't see my DNA. It's inside of me. You see, if my DNA were to change, I would be changed. The DNA inside of me determines who I am and how I'm made up. The same thing with a church. The DNA of a church determines who that church is. And mission values, some churches call them different things, but if other churches have them, they may be a little bit different from ours. And that's okay. And what we want to share with you is the mission values of our church. Now, as we go forward, just as a reminder, I'm not going to spend time on this, but our mission, which I hope you're familiar with, is advancing the gospel by making disciples who make disciples. That's a biblical mission. If you look again at Matthew 28, Acts 1-8, it's going to be consistent. We at Riverstone are about making disciples, advancing the gospel by making disciples who then make disciples. There's our mission. Our vision that we shared a number of months ago says, in the coming years, this is where we as a leadership have said we need to spend our time, the, the emphasis of our time. Focus on strengthening evangelism. That means church-wide all of you, strengthening our evangelistic effort and discipleship, remember, producing disciples, that results in maturing disciples and multiplying churches. See, multiplying churches is something that's unique to us in these coming years that hasn't been there in the past. And I want to give you an example of something that took place. As we developed the vision and the mission values and stuff a couple of years ago, our elders and staff, we brought in a consultant from the outside as we were working through some things. And uh, a great consultant, somebody I really respect, but he said something on a very big area that I just almost fell out of my seat and had to be restrained, I think, from saying, no, no, no. You see, this consultant said, what I want you guys to do 
pick a number. How big does Riverstone Church want to get? He said, what if it's 1,200? And then all of your decisions should lead to you becoming that number. And I was like, okay, I agreed with almost everything you said up to this point. That's hogwash. You see, if Riverstone Church, say we have 600 adults today, what if we plant three or four churches in the next 10 years and we help other churches get stronger and our attendance goes back to about 450? Praise God as disciples are being made. See, we're sending people internationally to strengthen and plant churches around the world. Praise God. It's not going to fill the seats in here. Is growing numbers bad? No. Here's why. What if you in your mind are thinking, you know what? I just have a passion for my next door neighbor, Mary Jo, and she doesn't know Jesus. Wouldn't it be awesome if 12 months from now she was sitting in one of these chairs? And let's multiply all the Mary Joes by all of your friends and family and neighbors. Don't we want them to come to know Jesus Christ? Wouldn't it be great if we brought them into the church body and to see them grow as disciples? So our mission, and you look at our vision, what we're saying is we really value making disciples for Jesus Christ, bringing people into the kingdom of God and helping them grow. Could come through planting a church. It come through, could come through strengthening other churches, and it will come through strengthening our own ministries here at Riverstone within the church and outside. So, as we move forward, here are our mission values. Now, these are, are biblical, and they're all very important, so the order doesn't necessarily say one over the other, but what we're saying is we as a church, the DNA of who we are, we want to be dependent on the Spirit of God. We want to be rooted in the Bible. We want to be centered on the gospel message, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We want to be devoted to one another in relationship where we're helping each other grow in Christ. And we want to be focused on the mission. And what that means is we want all of us to be about advancing the gospel and making disciples who make disciples. That's all of you. So this is what we say is these are the mission values of who we want to be. And one of the things, I, here's a great example. What if a new family ha comes into our church and they have an 8-year-old and a 16-year-old and mom and dad? Now, when that 8-year-old goes down to kids' ministries, when the 16-year-old goes to the youth group, when mom and dad are involved up here in our, in our worship ministries and in, and in Bible studies and adult ministries, what we want to see is that these mission values are consistent across the ministries and across the ages. So people will walk in, whichever age they are, and they'll say, wow, that church, man, Riverstone Church, it just, they just seem dependent on the Spirit of God. The Bible is so important to them. Man, we keep hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, all the way down to relationships are really important. And those people, you know what, not only do they preach it, but the people are on mission for God. See, this is what we're going to be preaching on in the next five weeks. So what we'll be doing, you'll be hearing from all five of our pastors. Pastor Tom's going to get up here when I'm done in about 30 seconds, and he's going to talk about what does it look like to be dependent on the Spirit. I'll be back up for the last one on focused on the mission, but our other pastors are going to come in and preach in between. And what we're going to say is this is where we want to be going as a church. And I hope it's a really fruitful five-week series that we embrace this. And it's a great way to start the new year. And I want to challenge all of us 
to really pay attention and look at these things. We're not going to be plastering them on the walls or asking you to memorize them. But we hope that these become a definition of who Riverstone Church is going forward. So with that, Tom, here's your remote. Thanks, Bob. It's going to come loud. Okay, as a pastoral staff, just meeting with the guys over the last couple months, praying over this and talking about it and planning this. So I want to start, and this will be our, our first slide, as Bob said, is to be dependent on the Spirit. What does that mean? I, mean, I, want, you, I want you to think about what is a dependent? Because the word itself can be a noun or an adjective. I'll tell you where anybody who's an adult here, if you've got kids, you, when it's tax time, you want to know what a dependent is, right? Because you get a big write-off. Every child that is considered a dependent, you pay less taxes. You get a, you get a credit for that. Now, as an adjective, to, to depend, a person who's depending is relying on. So he's, he's counting on, or she's being sustained by, she's trusting in, or he's, he's um, being helped by. So what would it look like to say, you know, one of the things that's really important to our church is we are dependent on the Spirit. We are dependent on the Spirit. There's so many things that, that people don't know about the Spirit. In fact, in the book of Acts, Paul came to a group, he said, did you receive the Spirit? They go, we don't even know what, we never even heard about the Holy Spirit. But I think in American churches particularly, we as Christians really need to think about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's a person, it's not a force. You don't go, the Holy Spirit, it was working. You know, He's not like pixie dust. And, and some of the songs we sing are a little odd. You know, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. I, I'm pretty sure he doesn't need an invitation to be welcome and so forth. So I want you to just think about, all right, as a Christian, how often do I think about the Holy Spirit? So let's kind of walk through this because it's really important that we, we, we grasp this in a practical level. So if, if I'm dependent on the Spirit, whether I'm a parent, I'm a teacher, I'm a single, I'm a Christian, I'm a, a, a widow or divorced or, or just anybody who's a believer, I know what our mission is. Bob just mentioned it. The church's mission is to advance the gospel, make disciples who make disciples. Now, I want to talk about that because really, that, that I'm just going to make disciples, I'm just going to go make disciples? You, you, you realize just how incredibly difficult that is. So we recognize the results are brought about by God. It's nothing, I can't make a disciple. And because of that, I learned from the Bible that it's actually God, the Holy Spirit, who is the one who brings about spiritual life and growth. It, it, he's the one that has to do it. If he doesn't do it, we're wasting our time, right? So practically, when we close this morning, we're going to go, then our church must have a humble, trusting dependence on the working of God's Spirit, especially through prayer, okay? So for some of you, this will be totally new. For some of you, you might already know this, but you need to be reminded, awakened, and focused again. So let's start on this first one. I don't want to take a lot of time with this because we, we say this all the time. Our mission is to advance the gospel by making disciples make disciples. So as Jesus gathered these 12 together, the apostles, and he said, look, I'm going to die for your sins, but then I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to send you out. And he trained them for three years. At the end of training them, just <clears throat> before he went back to heaven, he said, now go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, practically, that means that I'm going to share the gospel with people inviting them to repent, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and God changes them, and then they become a follower of Christ. And if they're a true follower of Christ, Jesus said, then baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach them. Teach them to become like Christ. Go out there and, and bring people into a forgiven relationship with me. Now, what I want you to think about is just how incredibly difficult and impossible that task is left to ourselves. I mean, think about the resistance to this. Number one, there's a real devil. The Bible makes it very clear the devil's alive and powerful and well. He hates that. That's one of his chief goals is to keep people from coming to Christ. The Bible says the God of this world blinds the minds of unbelieving. He resisted in every way. Jesus told a parable about the birds coming and snatching the seeds, and he said, that's Satan. The devil's going to hell, and he wants to bring everybody he can with him. So he is absolutely opposed to this. Secondly, the world in which we live is absolutely opposed to this. I mean, think about it. The idea that someone would have the nerve to come up and tell me that my religion's not right. <laughs> that Jesus is the only way. No, we don't do that in this culture, right? And so the people that I'm around are, are many times resistant to spiritual things, to talking about God, to talking about religion, to talking about truth. So I live in a culture where that's very resistant. And then believe it or not, you know where your third resistance is? It's not out there, it's in here. You're like, what are you talking about? You better... Remember this, as a Christian, it's not always easy to go out and be a witness, is it? How many times do people come to me, oh, pastor, I was afraid. We're all afraid. We're all chickens, right? And we all have pride that says, well, I don't want to talk about Jesus. What will people think of me, right? What if they get mad at me? What if they reject me? And, and, and not only pride from within and fear from within, but also just selfishness. I'm like, hey, not my problem. I got enough on my plate. I can't be out there worrying about other people. So there's this massive force which we're coming up against that says, God, God wants me to go make disciples? How am I going to do that? So with that in mind, I recognize that I have to believe and understand that results are brought about by God. So Jesus knew this. As he gathered his disciples, he said, look, I'm going to make you fishers of men. But early on, he was teaching them, it's not just being learning how to cast. So the first time he actually sent them out in Luke 9, 1, it says, he called them together and he gave them power and then he sent them out. So he kind of gave them like a little temporary battery pack, like, you don't know to be able to do this by yourself, so here's some power. But gradually he was teaching them, okay, as his three-and-a-half-year ministry was coming to an end, he's like, all right, listen, I'm going back to heaven, but I want you to go out and be my witnesses. So in the Gospel of John, he says, so I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and you're going to bear witness for me, but then he's going to bear witness to me. And the disciples are like, well, wait, what, what, what do you mean? We don't want you to go. And so Jesus said in John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because, he said, if I, go, if I don't go away, the helper won't come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin. Right? Good luck changing a person's heart. But Jesus said, I'm going to send the Spirit and he's going to help you. So 
here's, here's a way to think about that. The idea of leading your kids or someone else to Christ would be something like this. Remember the three little pigs? Imagine if the big bad wolf did huff, puff, and blow the brick house down, right? And now you got a pile of bricks. And so the three little pigs go, all right, let's just build this real quick before the wolf gets us. Wait, you're going to take a pile of bricks and you're going to build them up into a house? And your pigs? What's going to happen, right? Well, the reason I say that is because in Zechariah chapter 4, the temple of God had been torn to the ground. It was a pile of rubble. And God told his people that they were going to rebuild the temple. And they were discouraged and they were looking at this pile of rubble and they're like, oh, we can't do that. And so Zechariah 4, 6 says, then he said to me, God said this to Zechariah, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now, years ago, Christians used to do something really weird. They actually memorized verses. I know that's, we don't do that anymore because, you know, we can't memorize stuff, but it was this old habit. There's Somebody had like a cliche, like thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So I'm trying to pick out key verses like that wouldn't be a bad verse to stick on your refrigerator. You know, put it somewhere where you're going to see it or the mirror, right? Something that's going to remind you. Okay, God, your work in my life and in the life of others is not by might nor by power, but it's done by the Holy Spirit. So what does that look like? Well, okay, so I want to be a, a follower of Christ personally. I want to be like him. I want to help others to do the same. So if we're a church that's dependent on the Spirit, we have to remind ourselves that God the Holy Spirit is the one who does two things. Number one, he brings about spiritual life. And secondly, he causes spiritual growth, and it's all through his sovereign grace. So let me give you an example. We want our kids, if you're a Christian, if you're truly saved, you know you want your kids to get saved. Nothing's more important than that, right? If you get it, you're like, I want them to be in heaven with me. And so most parents give some thought to that. They're like, okay, what book should I read them? What seminars should I do? How should I have devotions with them? And there's a lot of stuff out there that gives us some good guidance, right? If you're a Christian and your dad's not saved, you're like, tell me how to bring my dad to Christ. If you're a Christian and you want somebody to be saved, we even try to help God, like I'll leave the Christian radio on. Most kids would say, yeah, my parents are pushing it on me, you know. But the point is, I have to understand that God is the one who gives spiritual life. There's nothing I can do to cause a person to become born again. That doesn't mean I don't do anything, but I understand that God is the one who speaks life into people. So Jesus said in John chapter 6, he gave a hard saying, and there were a lot of people who said, we're not going to follow you anymore. And Jesus goes, okay. Then he looks to Peter. He goes, you're going to follow me? Or are you leaving too? And Peter goes, Lord, you've got the words of life. Now look what Jesus said. He goes, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh, what I bring to the table, that profits nothing, zero. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit in our life. So what does that look like? If I believe that, that only the Holy Spirit gives life, I pray every blessed day, I try my hardest to pray every day, dear God, give life to my grandchildren. They're little. They don't know Christ yet. Please awaken them, Lord. Please speak the word of life into their hearts so that they're born again. 
right? And it doesn't have to be for your kids. Now, here's the thing. You're sitting out there going, well, I have people in my life that I'm not sure that saved, and some of them, frankly, <laughs> I'm pretty much going to give up on, right? I want to give you two examples of how this works. It's an entire work of God. It's not about us, okay? Yesterday, I was talking to somebody, a couple that I had met, and they had poor health, and I could tell the woman was hurting, and I said, could I pray for you? And she began to tell me what was wrong, and she said, my husband has the same thing, and he turned around, and he goes, I don't want to talk about this, and he walks away, right? And that was it. The gate was closed, and, and I called my wife and said, oh, it was a heartbreak. I wanted to talk to them about Christ. So this doesn't happen all the time, but I'll give you two examples of how the Spirit gives life. Most of you were here a few weeks ago when John Beagle's dad was here. And John will tell you this, and Rich won't mind me telling this because he's been telling everybody he can about this. But Rich Beagle, John's father, wanted nothing to do with Christ. Never talked to... Now, John got saved in the... Pastor John got saved in college in the Navigators, you know, grew, but he and his dad never talked about the Lord, never talked in detail about personal things. But John's dad would come and visit, and I just got to know him. Um, we had a lot in common, and so every time he would come, I'd look forward to talking to him. So a few months ago, John told me his dad was coming, and so I called him. I said, hey, Rich, I said, um, I hear you're coming to town tomorrow. I said, listen, sometime after, you know, just catching up, I said, sometime I'd like to talk to you about your relationship with Jesus, right? He goes, okay, how about tomorrow? And I said, well, I, I didn't think you would have time this weekend. I figured you already have plans with John. He goes, no, let's make it Sunday. He goes, you tell me when and where. So the next day, he comes to John, and when he arrives at John's house, he says, John, guess what? Pastor Tom is going to talk to me tomorrow about my relationship with Christ. Now, when we woke John up, because John had passed out, we, we did the smelling salts, he, he texts me, he goes, I don't know what's going on here, but my dad is wanting to talk to you about your relationship with Christ. I go, yeah, I know, right? I don't know. So the next day, he shows up at my house promptly when he said he'd be there. He goes, Tom, ever since yesterday, or Friday, when you told me you want to talk to me about my relationship with Christ, that's all I could think about. I am so excited about talk, telling you about my relationship, talking about my relationship with Christ. And I'm just like a spectator. I'm like, okay. So I'm just sitting there on the couch, and he just begins to tell me his life story. And after about an hour, I said, now let's talk about your relationship with Christ. And it was just simple. I just told him about Christ and dying for our sins and wanting to be his Lord and Savior. And when we got done, he goes, you know, I feel like Jesus has been there all along, and I just kept pushing him away. And he goes, but now I'm ready. And he prayed, and he accepted Christ into his life. Comes to my wife, he goes, I just made Jesus the Lord of my life. He told John that. He's been growing. John's sending him books and tapes. Um, he wants to get baptized. Now, what just happened? The Holy Spirit gave him life. The Holy Spirit awakened him. The Holy Spirit saved him. See this guy right here? Stand up. Right in front of you, Michael. This guy right in front of you. Tell everybody your name. <laughs> Say it loud. Tyrone. Tyrone? Anybody know Tyrone? Okay. Tyrone was walking down the street one day. Thanks, Tyrone. You can sit. He's walking down the street one day. <laughs> In the pouring rain, right? I'm just driving alongside, and I see a guy walking in the rain. I said, hey, man. I pulled over. I said, you need a lift? He said, yeah, I took the bus. I'm going to school. So 
he gets in the car, I said, man, it's raining out there, you ought to have a hat. He goes, oh, I said, hey, I took him to the school he's going to, um, and he said, I said, do you ever think about the Lord? I'd love to talk to you sometime. And he's like, no, not really. And I gave him, I said, well, you should get yourself a hat. I gave him a couple bucks to buy a hat. I hope it wasn't the Eagles hat, just kidding. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I said, here's my car. Years, years later, two years or three years later, he calls me up, he goes, hey, do you remember you bought me a hat? I go, yeah, yeah, I remember that. He goes, well, I went online, I started listening to the sermons that you were doing, and I bought a study Bible, and I think I'd like to come visit the church. And Tyrone came, he's been saved, he's baptized, he's growing. This is God, there's nothing magic, I'm not a genie, I don't have special techniques, or if only, you know, God's spirit is the one who gives life, and he doesn't just use the preacher. He can use any one of us, right? So if I believe that God brings life, it's not just talking to people about God, right? It's talking to God about people. Lord, I can't awaken my disinterested cousin or my disobedient husband. Only you can. So Lord, I want to value that. I want to, to make that part of my life. But not only does God bring about the life, but he also causes the growth. Now, this is really important because we're not here to get soul scalps. Jesus didn't say, go and get people to make professions, right? And I think this is where we often do ministry like this. We're like, how many kids got saved at Vacation Bible School? A hundred kids. I go, stop. And we don't do that here. We don't say a hundred kids got saved. We might have 20 kids that said a prayer, but that's not life. We don't know if they were saved. And so what happens is, if a person does become a believer, then they've been imparted new life from God. Their heart has changed. And then they'll start to show signs of growth. So let me give you an illustration. As Jesus talked about this, he said, if you're not born by the Spirit, you're not going to be in the kingdom of God. This is John chapter 3. You've got to be born again. You have to be made alive by God. Right? And so he's talking to this guy, Nicodemus. Nicodemus goes, what are you talking about? I can't go in my mother's womb. And Jesus goes, well, let me give you an illustration. Let's take the wind. He goes, the wind blows wherever it wants. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming or where it's going. Watch a golfer, right? He wants to check the wind. He throws grass in the air. Oh, well, now it's going this way. The Spirit of God, in the same way, moves in mysterious ways. We never know whose heart the Holy Spirit is moving in. We can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind, right? If I see leaves going that way, I know where the wind's going. The same thing's true about spiritual life and spiritual growth. I can't tell if somebody says to me, oh, I prayed to receive Jesus, but I can begin to look for signs of life. First John says, if you've been born again, those who are born of God will confess Jesus as Messiah. The first sign you would look for is people to say, I want people to know I'm a Christian. A second one he says in chapter 3, no one who has been born by God will continually live a life of sin because God has put his seed inside of him. Another one is he will have an affection for other Christians or she will begin to want to be, no one who is born of God continually hates the brethren. And so as your kids, you know, oh, Joey got saved, you're looking for that, not just like Billy said a prayer, but is Billy confessing to be a believer? Is Billy who used to lie like it was his job as he's starting to show conviction of sin and wanting to change from that? Do people begin to show signs of wanting to read the Bible? You know, this isn't rocket science. We do the same thing with physical birth. When a child comes out of the womb, 
nowadays they have lots of monitors and stuff, but you can't, for years, they didn't even know if that baby was alive, right? And while it might be cute in the pictures, babies don't always come out crying. Some of them come out quiet and still. I know that because that's how my son was born, quiet and still, not a peep, right? And so as cruel as it might look to, to flick their foot or spank their bottom, they want to make sure that they're breathing, that they're alive, right? And so my son, when he came out, he was quiet, they're suctioning his throat, they're spanking him a little bit, and then he lets that little peep, like, right? And that's how some people come to Christ, very quietly, just reading your Bible or very personally, the Lord just awakens you and you're born again, okay? I won't name her this time because I think didn't sit well, but my kids are older. But my one daughter, when she was born, she came out screaming and peeing, like both at once. <laughs> Clearly, she's alive, fully alive, right? And that's the same with conversion. Some people, they just turn to Christ and they're like, wow, you know, and they're just telling everyone about Jesus and they're radical, right? But the one thing that they have in common is that they show signs of life, but not just signs of life. Then they begin to grow. Years ago, I helped to plant a church down in South Jersey, Fellowship Bible Church, and there was a family there who had a little boy named Philip. And I remember the mom saying, hey, this is Philip, and she's holding him like this. I said, oh, how old is Philip? She said, seven. I said, oh, seven months. No, he's seven years old. Now, mind you, she's holding him like this, and he's seven years old. She said, yeah, he has a very rare disease, and so he'll never grow much more than this. Um, and praise the Lord, he lived a lot longer than they thought. He lived to 11, and he was a powerful testimony. Many people were moved and came to Christ at his funeral. But you know, spiritually, when people say they've come to know Christ, the Bible says we're to press on to maturity. We're to grow. And so I want you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 3, where we, where we see a, a passage that really encourages us to think about the importance of growth in the life of Christians and then how we participate in that. So if you're a Christian, you should be growing, which means you're changing. You're not just, oh yeah, if you need a Bible this morning, we have plenty of extras, just raise your hand. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You can keep that Bible as well. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul's writing to the Corinthians who have been Christians for at least five years. And some of them are acting like unbelievers. They're fighting and fussing and not getting along and they're doing a lot of stuff that you're like, okay, that's not becoming for a Christian. You shouldn't be immoral. You shouldn't be suing one another. So he says in chapter 3, uh, verse 2, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you weren't yet able, but now you're not able, for you're still fleshly. Since there's jealousy and strife among you, aren't you fleshly and just walking like mere men? He's saying to them, look, you've been a Christian for a long time. You're living like a non-Christian. You're acting and thinking and speaking like a non-Christian. You shouldn't be there. You should be growing. But then he realizes that growth isn't something that he does. So look at verse 6. He goes, I planted. In other words, he was the first one to evangelize the Corinthians. Apollos watered. But look at this phrase. God was causing the growth. God through the Holy Spirit, was causing the growth. Now, some people read verses like that, and they're like, see, God's going to do what he's going to do. <laughs> and I go, yeah, he causes the growth, but he causes the growth through people. Do you want to work together with God and have the joy of seeing people come to life and to grow? 
right? Then, then you and I have to get in the game. So notice what Paul says. He goes on to say this, verse 7. So then, neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything. It's God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and waters are one. But look at verse 8. Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor, okay? Imagine my wife likes gardening. I hate gardening, right? But we're all different. Like, I like fishing. She doesn't care for fishing, right? So imagine as she works hard in the garden, if at the end of the summer I go, hey, how do you like our garden? Look what we grew. Isn't this neat? She'd be like, wait, no, hang on. There's no we here. You didn't do anything. And I, what I used to do is I dig the garden. That's it. After that, you're on your own. Then she always asked me to weed. I'm like, wait a minute, it's your garden. So, um, but here's the point. God causes the growth, but he says you'll be rewarded for your labor. Now think about that. It doesn't matter if you haven't brought people to Christ. If you labored and you prayed, God doesn't go, oh, you didn't get any results? Sorry, no reward for you. People tease me sometimes. God has given me the gift of evangelism. I get that. But it doesn't mean you don't have the gift of evangelism. People would be like, I witnessed to that guy for four years and you just walk by him and he gets saved. I don't get a reward special for that. Paul says, you are rewarded for your labor. So as you pray over your children, pray over your friends, pray over your neighbors and loved ones, and you labor and, 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 and you give and you serve, whether it's setting up chairs so people can come hear the word, God is the one who's ultimately giving life and causing growth. And so our whole church should be characterized every parent should be thinking lord i want my kids to be made alive and praying together help our kids to grow help us to work and disciple them every sunday school teacher we should be talking about that are you praying for your children to come to christ in your class every small group leader every bible study every one-on-one -on -one discipleship uh our our divorce care our our um young adults our seniors Everybody should be talking and praying, Lord, please let your spirit cause growth through your sovereign work in our lives. Now, lastly then, if that's the case, then our church must have a humble and trusting dependence on the working of God's spirit through prayer. One of the primary ways that God the Holy Spirit works in people's lives is through prayer. So here's an example, and again, I, there were so many verses, it was so exciting as I was doing this, I'm like, Lord, is, what verse should I use? So just sample verses, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles had begun to share their faith, the church was exploding, thousands of people were coming to Christ, and the devil does what he always does, he brings resistance. So the apostles get thrown in jail, and they're threatened. They're told, if you keep witnessing, we're going to beat you. So when they get out, they come and they tell the church. And the church didn't go, that's not right. Let's start a petition. Let's pick it. Let's go to Caesar. No, it says, when they heard this, they joined together and they prayed. And look what it says. When they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak the word of God with boldness. You see, they had learned that the way God works is through his Holy Spirit, through prayer. So to close this morning, I want us to have a very practical example of doing this. I want you to turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3, where we're going to look at one of Paul's prayers, and this is something that you can begin to pray. I pray this very often. In fact, you've heard me recommend a book. I'll recommend it again. Somebody asked about it this morning. It's called Praying with Paul. 
by Carson. We're going to have some more in the bookstore soon. But it's just taking these prayers of Paul and learning how to pray them. But this is a very specific one. If I am a dependent person on the Holy Spirit, then part of my prayer life is actually asking God through the Holy Spirit to work. Okay? Now, this is important to think about. People ask me frequently, should I pray to the Holy Spirit? My suggestion is no. You're like, what? And the reason I say that is because there are no examples in the Bible of anyone ever praying to the Holy Spirit. Jesus told us we can pray to the Father. There are examples of people praying to Jesus. But here's an example of Paul praying. Now, if he wanted us to pray to the Spirit, he would have said, so here's what I do. I pray to the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't do that. He prays to the Father, and he asks the Father through the Spirit to pray. But I want you to see how practical this is, and we're going to actually close with a prayer. But start in verse 14. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. Now the background is he's writing to a group of people who don't like each other, Jews and Gentiles. Matter of fact, we might even say it this way. They hate each other. Jews and Gentiles couldn't stand each other. Not that we have any things like that, like Republicans and Democrats, or blacks and whites, or Hispanics and blacks, but back then, there were people who didn't like each other, right? Or rich and poor people, or whatever, right? So these Jews and Gentiles, they don't like each other, and Paul's going, now that you're Christians, you're one in Christ, and so I want you to love each other, patiently forgive each other, work together with humility, and grow in the Lord, and of course, we're smarter we understand there's just too much cultural difference. So what we do in our culture is we go, well, we have our Messianic Jews, the Christian Jews, they meet on Friday night, and then the Gentiles meet on Sunday. It's just a lot easier, right? And Paul would have been like, are you people crazy? Right? So he knew that to ask Jews and Gentiles to get along and love each other, that wasn't going to happen without prayer. But look how he prays. He goes, I ask God, verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. In other words, he's got plenty in his resource bank to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Okay, we'll keep going in a minute, but I just want that to sink in. Paul regularly, he says, I get down on my knees and I say, God, as I think of that church in Ephesus, please strengthen them with power through your Holy Spirit in their inner man, okay? That, to me, is a great example of someone who's dependent on the spirit, okay? So, what was he expecting to happen as a result of this being strengthened? First of all, he says in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then he goes on to say, and then you're going to, to be filled with love, right? Now, I thought these people were Christians, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. They are Christians. Well, I thought Christ already dwelt in my heart. He does. He indwells every Christian. If you're a Christian, Christ lives in you. But he has something different in mind here. If Christ is dwelling, then he's at home and he's freely reigning as Lord of your heart. Okay? I want to suggest that some of you are here today, you're a Christian, but Christ isn't dwelling freely as Lord of your heart. You've been resisting the Holy Spirit. You've been grieving the Holy Spirit. It might be the way you're living it might be your priorities. It might be the way you're speaking. Ephesians 4 says, don't let unwholesome things come out of your mouth. That grieves the Holy Spirit. So Paul was praying that these believers would receive strength from the Holy Spirit so that they would, in a very practical way, allow Jesus to be Lord of their life 
And as he was Lord of their marriage, Lord of their parenting, Lord of their finances, Lord of their recreation. If you're a teenager, he's Lord over your schoolwork, Lord over what you watch on TV, your social media. He's Lord in every area of your life and you're growing in love. And when that happens, transforming things happen in the lives of people and of the church. So what I want to encourage you to think about here is if we're going to be dependent on the working of God's spirit, number one, it needs to be in your personal prayer. Regularly, you and I should be praying for the Holy Spirit to be working in our lives. You're like, what? Like what? Well, for one thing, the Bible says, if I walk in the spirit, then I'm not going to give in to the flesh. The flesh is evidence, sexual impurity, relational sins, anger, strife, pride, drunkenness, substance addictions, anger and fighting, selfishness, all those things that, that comes easy, that comes natural. But the fruit of the Spirit, the Bible says, is love, joy, peace, patience. These things that the Spirit produces in my life, self-control, kindness, and gentleness. These things you don't just go, come on, man, try harder, right? These are things that God's Spirit has to do in our lives, and He does it as we pray. And so some of you here this morning, you're burdened about somebody else. You're burdened about someone you love. Maybe they're not saved, and you know that God's Spirit speaks life, or they're not growing, right? And then some of you are burdened about a personal thing. It might be about your health. But I suspect that many of you, like me, are often burdened about our own sin, right? Something that you might be struggling with. And maybe you've been really trying, but it's more than trying. It's trusting and yielding and praying specifically, God, through the Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll get a hold of this part of my life and that you'll give me real experiential power to change. It's really exciting. So as we close this morning, if you get a chance in the history of the church, the times that God revives the church and does amazing things is always through prayer. Look up sometime the businessmen's prayer meeting in New York City or the Haystack prayer meeting Many, many times in history, God has brought great revival to his church through prayer. And so it's been my prayer for a long time that God would revive and fill and empower our church and that we would see the Holy Spirit doing amazing things. Corporate prayer, individual prayer, couples praying together, seeing God do miracles. And so pray that our church will be a church that's truly characterized by prayer. So let's take a moment to practice that. If you're not a Christian right? You need Christ in your life. That's the first thing. So your prayer should just be, Lord Jesus, I want to be saved today. I believe that Christ died for me. I can't save myself. I believe he paid for my sin, and I pray that he'll come in and give me life and change me. But if you are a Christian, we're going to pray together that God will strengthen us through the Spirit. So let's bow together. Just take a moment and ask God to strengthen you and your inner person through the Holy Spirit. And then tell him what you need strength for. Do you need strength to stop worrying? Do you need strength to overcome a sin? Do you need strength from the Holy Spirit to be able to forgive someone? Do you need strength from the Holy Spirit because you know you should witness to someone you haven't done it? Do you need strength from the Holy Spirit to confess some sin that you've been hiding and you're just too afraid to 
to admit it to anybody. You need strength to love your spouse or some difficult person or not to be afraid. Father, as a church, we pray today. We thank you so much for giving us the Holy Spirit. And we reaffirm our commitment to allowing the Holy Spirit to reign and to lead and to empower us. We confess our sin together of doubt and fear and, and pride or laziness, neglecting and not depending on the Holy Spirit. Please fill your church today with the power of your spirit. Please do a miracle, Lord. Awaken those in our church who have not yet been saved, our children, our grandchildren, our spouses, our loved ones, anybody who's not saved, please work in their hearts, even this morning through the Holy Spirit. And then help us as people. Some, there are many here that need to make big decisions and change the way they're living. They know they need to do that, but they've been afraid. Give them power today through the Holy Spirit. May we from this day forth be marked as people who are dependent on the Spirit. We give you glory, Lord, and we thank you through Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.